You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. America. Ten. Hack. Addies. Oh, yeah, we're going to start today's show off talking about some dogs. <laughs> the Georgia dogs, that is. <laughs> and if you didn't watch the show last night, you saw them dogs get busy, all right? <laughs> all right, y'all. Hey, man, welcome to Fearless. I keep telling y'all, man, this is the hardest hitting show in the airways. I'm your thrill sergeant. I'm Uncle Jimmy. <laughs> and he's the Blazers' very own version of a bulldog. That's Jason Whitlock. Who let the dog go? Who? <laughs> hey, man, this is Tuesday. We got a great show for you. And the only way I can describe today's show is to tell you that today's show is like Jason's colon. It's packed. <laughs> First of all, Jason's going to start a little fire off by talking about what are the true qualities that it takes to be a great NFL coach? And after we start that off, we're going to head out to Missouri and holler at my show me bro, TJ Mo, And he's going to come in and try to match wits with wit. And they're going to break down the college football championship game last night and see what happens. And after that, we need to all come to attention for the first lady of the fearless family. And of course, I'm talking about the one and only Shamika Michelle. And she's gonna be here to talk about this thing going on with rapper Jim Jones tongue kissing his mama and Kanye moving across the street from Kim and then moving his new girlfriend in. This here got the makings of some real baby mama's dramas, okay? And when we get done with that segment, we're gonna need to have a doctor come in and make a house call. And of course, I'm talking about Dr. Delano Squires, MD, my dude. And he's gonna come in here and perform a colonic on this show that's right, he's gonna give the show what Jason's intestines need, a thorough and complete ritual cleansing. Look here, man, I cannot wait to see if Delano's gonna be up to this challenge, all right? <laughs> Listen, y'all, y'all know what time it is. It's time to hit the likes, to hit the subscribes, to let E.T. phone home, to give Jason five stars, to give me a dilly-dilly if you feel me. Go perch the merch. Put some Uncle Jimmy swag in your bag. Release the doves, release the hounds, because here he is, America's chocolate snuffleupagus. Give it up for Jason Whitlock. Who let the dogs out? Uh, good job, Uncle Jimmy. Uh, not as good as this fire I'm about to make, uh, to start. Uh, the biggest mistake you can make in modern American media is give black people, particularly black men, the information, context, and advice they need to make 
successful life decisions. Nothing sparks corporate and social media derision quicker than a well-intentioned black person passing along or promoting a worldview that leads to self-sufficiency and achievement. It's the equivalent of teaching a black slave to read in 1821. It's borderline unlawful, a threat to disrupt a long ago established natural order of white Americans as the primary providers and caregivers for black people. It's as innate as a dog lover feeding their golden retriever and taking him for a poop 30 minutes later. It's the way things are meant to be. This natural order explains the yearly media discourse around NFL head coaching vacancies, a discussion we're about to have now that six head coaches have been canned. The overwhelming majority of the conversation focuses on shaping NFL owners into well-intentioned providers and caregivers, or as they're affectionately known now, allies and comrades. <clears throat> According to conventional media wisdom, the road to opportunity and success for aspiring black NFL head coaches is to train Jerry Jones, Robert Kraft, Jim Irsay, Dean Spanos, <clears throat> et cetera, into being better pet owners. It's the same strategy being advocated across corporate America. Black progress cannot be achieved until white people are taught to love and trust black dogs. Rational black men do not see themselves as pets in need of a home. We see ourselves as men capable of providing for ourselves and competing against our peers regardless of color. Explain the rules of the game and then let us compete. That's all we ask. This is at the root of my frustration with corporate sports media. Journalists and pundits refuse to properly educate aspiring black coaches about the rules that govern high profile leadership positions such as NFL head coach. The media love to tell you about the outdated rules, the ones from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s that clearly implied black men need not apply. But those rules have been significantly relaxed and or abandoned. If journalists had a legitimate interest in the advancement of black NFL assistant coaches, they wouldn't focus on the Rooney rule, the rule that stipulates NFL owners interview a set quota of black candidates, they would educate the public and assistant coaches on the Lombardi profile. Legendary Green Bay Packers coach Vince Lombardi established the preferred profile of a successful NFL head coach. Lombardi retired from the NFL in 1970. For the past 50 years, NFL owners have been trying to hire the next Vince Lombardi. Lombardi was a Christian authoritarian who attended mass every day. He married at age 27, fathered two kids, devoted his life to coaching football, and became the Packers head coach at age 46. He was a conservative, bootstrap patriarch. This morning, I researched the 20 most successful NFL coaches over the past 50 years since the establishment of the Lombardi profile. Here's who made my list. Bill Belichick, Don Shula, Bill Walsh, Joe Gibbs, Tom Landry, Chuck Knoll, Bill Parcells, John Madden, Bud Grant, Andy Reid, Tony Dungy, Dick Vermeil, Bill Cower, Mike Tomlin, Sean Payton, Marv Levy, John Harbaugh, John Gruden, Pete Carroll, and Bruce Arians. Every one of them, except Marv Levy, married young and had children. 
Levy did not marry until age 68. All of them sustained marriages for at least 20 years, including Marv Levy. In general, successful NFL coaches have a conservative worldview, religious faith, build and maintain long marriages, they adopt basic Western civilization values, they're not leftist revolutionaries with communist leanings. They believe in the nuclear family and the American dream. Does black, matriarchal, liberal culture prepare young black men to fit the Lombardi profile, the profile NFL owners have desired for 50 years? Does the culture prepare black men for leadership of any kind? Leftist culture is secular, it's feminine, it wants to disrupt the nuclear family, it sees men as the root of evil, it teaches black men to see themselves as victims. Through their Inspire Change initiative, black NFL players have been releasing national TV commercials titled Where I Come From that promote a liberal worldview and paint black people as victims. This past weekend, Bear Safety Eddie Jackson narrated a 30-second spot that had a black boy state, when I get a job, I'll make $10,000 less than white people with the same skills. Earlier in the season, Lions linebacker Trey Flowers started one with an older black woman stating, if you look like me, you're over-policed, overcharged, and over-incarcerated. Here's a compilation of a few of these television spots. Let me tell you about where I'm from. Where I'm from, the digital divide makes equality nearly impossible. When I get a job, I'll make $10,000 less than white people with the same skills. Where I'm from, we overcome. And soon, there will be many CEOs, CFOs, and CTOs that look like me. Let me tell you about where I'm from. Where I'm from, poverty is a crime. If you look like me, you're over-policed, overcharged, and over-incarcerated. I was sentenced to die in prison for a $28 robbery, but change is coming. Let me tell you about where I'm from. Black neighborhoods are devalued 23% compared to white neighborhoods. 25% of the homes in foreclosure are black-owned. The NFL and the National Urban League are fighting to protect affordable housing for all, because we all deserve a home, no matter where we're from. The commercials are Twitter deep and illogical. They're designed to trigger and emote. The actor dancing in the background says all you need to know about the depth of the message. The commercials call into question the seriousness of the people paying for them. Do they represent the mindset of the typical black man? If so, are these men leaders? What percentage of black NFL assistant coaches fit the Lombardi profile? Black men marry at a lower rate than white men, divorce at a higher rate than white men, and father illegitimate children at a higher rate than white men. That's a lethal combination that undermines black leadership. Instability at home and baby mama drama impact work performance. Marriage is just as much a business decision as a heart decision. Does corporate media explain that when discussing the racial disparity among NFL head coaches? Is our candidate pool sabotaged by a culture that pulls us the opposite direction from the preferred profile? Victims aren't great leaders. 
Neither are men trapped in family dysfunction. Maybe our adoption of liberal culture is the real systemic racism blocking our path forward. That's my fire. I know it's not comfortable uh, to hear, particularly if you're a black man like myself, but at some point we have to deal with the truth. If we're not willing to deal with the truth, we'll never move towards success. We'll never move towards truth. We'll never move towards God. We're going to be trapped in a cycle of failure if we don't deal with the truth. And the truth is we have adopted a leftist culture designed to undermine black men and men in general. Let's, let's take race out of it. We're just have been foolish enough to see this leftist design as our culture. And then we get mad at people that's like, I don't want no parts of that culture. It's feminine. It undermines leadership. It's not consistent with what's taught in the Bible. It's not consistent with what we're taught as Christians. I want nothing to do with that. And so when people stand up and say, I don't want anything to do with a culture that is that negative, that feminine, that matriarchal. Oh, well, you're just a sellout on Uncle Tom or you're a racist. How about you're just someone who wants to be successful and wants to teach other people Here's the proper path to success. Here's the path that God designed that was taught to you, hopefully at some point in your church experience. Why go against that? They've, de they've defined everything that is in alignment with a biblical worldview They've defined that as white and racist, and so therefore we're foolish enough to go the opposite direction and then complain, oh, uh, we're not getting the same outcomes as white men. Are we willing to do the same things that white men are willing to do? You can't ask for the same outcomes if you're not willing to take the same steps. If you've chosen an approach that doesn't lead to success, that doesn't put you in, in line for leadership positions, don't complain when you're not given them. And so all these NFL players with their inspired change garbage, you're basically preaching to black people and to black, to everybody. I'm a victim. I'm not man enough for this world. If white people don't come and save me and fix everything that I need fixed, I can't make it in this world. I'm going to make $10,000 less than them. My father didn't care about that. That's why he built his own business because he wanted to rely on himself. I'm just sorry, I haven't had that experience. And I graduated college in May of 1990. I got a job 
at the Bloomington Herald Times for $5 an hour. I was, I was the lowest paid person at the Bloomington Herald Times. And you know why? Because I deserved to be. I was the least qualified when I started. And you know what I did? Rather than see myself as a victim, I fixed it. I became the best. And I've, everybody that I work with, and, I'm not, and there were some talented, very good people, some of them liberals. Back then when, you know, when that actually wasn't a slur, but very good people. But guess what? I made more money than all of them, probably combined. Because I fixed me. I played, I put the work in and fixed me. I didn't enter into it with a mindset of, oh my God, I got to say, I got a college degree just like them. I should be getting paid this and this, and I must be getting treated wrong because I'm right. I got treated a, a low amount. I got paid a low amount because I played football in college, drank beer, smoked weed, and socialized in college, and did not uh, do all the internships and prepare myself as well as a lot of my peers. So I had to start out at the very bottom and work my way up, and that's what I did. I was nobody's victim. And so we're going to have to deal with the fact we have adopted a culture, a mentality that doesn't fit the profile for leadership. Traditional. Maybe they'll change everything. And in 30 years, all the coaches will have baby mamas and baby mama drama. And, and, and they'll, they'll all have a victim's mentality and they all go in and lead their team. And say, Guys, we can't win today. You know, we're a mostly black team and these referees are going to be all against us. And, you know, when you, when I run for 10 yards, they're only going to count it for nine. Where if a white running back ran for 10 yards, it'll get counted for 11. Maybe that'll be the coaching model 30 years from now. But that ain't it right now. And so black, whether the media has black faces on or white faces, the ones that won't talk about what you need to do to prepare yourself for these leadership positions, rather than telling you, oh God, if we can just bully these white people into giving you a job, if we can just make them feel bad enough to give you a job. These NFL owners don't care what color the coach is. They want to win. They want their egos inflated and celebrated. And they don't care who. Now, I'm there was a time when they did care, but now they don't care. And it's been that way for about 20 years. And one of the reasons why there's this disparity is because our candidate pool is smaller than the white candidate pool because we don't fit the profile. If you leave high school or college with kids, that's not setting yourself up to be a leader, period, end of story. And I'm sure there's some outliers. I'm sure there's an aberration or two, but I went and looked up and studied the 20 coaches, 
sent the 20 most successful NFL coaches since Vince Lombardi. And whether black or white, they all fit pretty much the exact same profile. All right, I'm going to uh, bring in TJ Moe to help me discuss this. And at some point, we'll transition to the uh, national uh, championship game from last night. But uh, TJ, we'll start here. TJ, the former Missouri wide receiver. Uh, is liberal ideology, is it at odds with the mindset needed to be a football coach? Well, I, I think absolutely, no question. I think, I think the prop, like the liberal culture today is inherently contrarian. Okay, they look at whatever the conservatives have done. It's our name, right? We are conserving the Constitution, preserving what has worked in the past, what we've built to the greatest country that's ever existed. And we followed those things into success throughout life. Part of that is a nuclear family. Part of that is pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I mean, we have a set of principles that has worked really, really well for us. We got 250 something founding fathers. They put their heads together after coming from all different places and said, here are the very best ideas that we have to offer you. And they put them together and we have followed that now to an unprecedented level of success with a single constitution that countries across the world envy. Everybody else switches their constitution every 10, 15 years. We've had the same one, 250 years. So we have a, we have a number of principles and now we have the ability to study these principles, right? The nuclear family, you get together, God made a man and a woman said, go procreate. There's your nuclear family. And you go, and, and we see that now in, in studies that that is what leads you to success, that type of behavior when you follow these things. So the liberal culture, the inherently contrarian culture is the opposite. Whatever, whatever good has come, you say that's the standard, that is racist, that's, that's a, that is a standard for white people, it's not good for us. And, and it do, they, say, they say that it should not be followed, that's not the only way. Now there are exceptions and oftentimes that's what people want to stand by. They say, okay, well, uh, people have done this, succeeded without being exactly that. People love to point out rappers, right? And they say, look, he's, you, you got a hundred million dollars. Yeah, the one guy who's got the talent out of this world to be the guy that doesn't have to follow the template. That is true. But I think I think one of the, the liberals would not agree to this, but I think one of the general principles of liberalism is explaining why things don't work instead of just making things work. And so they don't walk around giving out rebukes. What they say is the reason that's not working is because that guy is holding you down. You are oppressed. And then they go over and I say, and the reason this is not working is because of this. We just need to implement socialism. And so you've got all these explanations, no solutions, of course, all these explanations. And so you don't go around rebuking anybody because rebuke is ultimately what gets you to where you need to go. Uh, the Bible says, Proverbs 27, five and six, open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. That's straight out of the Bible. So you would much rather have your friend telling you the truth and have it hurt so that you can get through the pain and get on the other side, have a level of growth so that next time you're prepared and it's not so difficult. That's life, right? It's like you got calluses on your hand, don't you? And that is so that you can go lift those weights again and you won't tear your hand up. You go through something difficult, callous up and so that you are more prepared for next time. This is biblical. 
don't let don't let your enemies come around and explain away why you just can't do it. Because as the Bible said, the kisses of an enemy are deceitful and it allows you to chase your tail forever and never make any progress. TJ, do you think that black players and coaches realize the culture that they've adopted actually undermines their leadership opportunities? Are are, are they even aware of the profile that uh, NFL owners and college administrators, presidents, are they even aware of the profile that people, hiring people are looking for from a head coach? Absolutely not. Neither are the white people in the NFL. Uh, I I just think generally people are completely unaware. I mean, self-awareness is like I took a personality test one time. And and, uh, so after I got done playing football, I did three years of therapy and just self-discovery. Who am I? What am I doing on this world? I thought football was my whole life. I got to figure out who I am. And so I went met with met with a a psychologist, basically a a mentor, a a counselor, whatever you want to call him. And we worked through who I am. What do I do? What are my expectations for my life? Where do I want to go? And so this personality test that I took after that, I did a lot of self-discovery. And so then you, one of my highest values now is self-awareness and and how that is developed is once I gained some self-awareness, I was able to look around and see that nobody has any self-awareness. Nobody has gone, gone anywhere and, and said, who am I? What am I doing? And what is expected of me? Very few people do that in general. And so I, I think the NFL executives, they know who they're looking for. I'm not sure an NFL head coach could tell you why they got picked. I'm not sure an NFL player could tell you why that coach is their coach. I think people are who they are. They have very little self-awareness. It's got nothing to do with race. Um, Some people, I mean, we are oftentimes a product of our environment. And so, you know, we've talked about with, with the single motherhood rate, if you have a mom and dad in your home that you grow up with, you are far more likely to grow up and have a family that stays together. The single motherhood rate in the in a, the white community is hovering around 30%. It ain't good. 1965, that was 3%. Today, it's 30%, so it's tenfold worse. But in the black community, it went from about 25% to pretty close to 75%. So if you grow up without a dad, naturally, you're probably not going to see the value in a dad that you would have if you were there. So you, you go down this line, you're a product of your environment. I just don't know that anybody could identify exactly what they're doing, what they need. What, what I do think, though, I, I can't figure this out. The, the NFL players who are on these commercials, I think the idea is they feel like they are being righteous, being noble, standing up for people who, who don't have a voice. Maybe that's true. But these are some of the most hyper successful people in the history of the world complaining about being victims. You have guys who are the 1% of the 1% of the 1% that I couldn't do it. I'm sitting here with you because I wasn't good enough. These guys had talent and or work ethic and or discipline, whatever it is, whatever the makeup of someone who can make it in the NFL is, they had it and I didn't. So these are some of the most hyper successful people that have ever existed. You think about how many people are in the NFL. You've got, what is it with, with practice squad, maybe you're around 60 players, 65 players per team, 32 teams, and you have that you know X number of turnover each year compared to the amount of kids that wanted to be professional football players. And it's not like you can just, hey, you keep working towards it. No, when you're, you're either good enough or you're not at age 22. 
You're either making it or you're not. There are very few Kurt Warners in the world who just keep trying and come back. So these are the most hyper successful people in the history of the world. And they don't have the self-awareness to stand up and say, this doesn't make any sense. What do you mean I'm the victim? Everybody wants to be me. I, I don't see it. And so these guys who are hyper successful should do some self-reflection and say, what did I do to get here? And maybe you should do that. And then you could get here. I'm going to defend them in this regard. I think some of them are self-aware enough to know, man, I'm special. I was born with a unique talent and skill. That's why I made it. I think they think they're speaking not for themselves, but for others. And the problem is they're so young and because they have, were born with so much talent uh, and they walk off a college campus and become instant millionaires, uh, I, I think they are clueless about how people actually achieve success in America. And generally speaking, it starts, it goes about the way that I did. $5 an hour on your ass in a one room efficiency somewhere, willing to work harder than everybody else, or to be, or at least work as hard as everybody else. And then to crawl your way up the ladder. I, I don't, many of these, these athletes just don't have that personal experience. And so, and then they start running around in groups together, you know, because it, when, when you're 21, 22 years old and you have, you're earning millions of dollars, or even hundreds of thousands of dollars, that's a small little click group of people that you can run around with who have the same thing that you have, uh, the ability to do the same thing you have. And so they exist in a little bubble themselves that protects them from reality. And then maybe they have family members or friends from the past who are poor and, and all, all you can tell them, well, what's the quickest solution for you to get where I'm at? Instead of being like, hey, here's the path you need to take to be successful. It's basically a 20 to 30 year process to, to acquire any real wealth. Here's what you need to do. Hey, maybe you should join the military. Maybe you should through the military, uh, go get educated. T t I achieved economic success because I, I have a unique gift as a journalist. And so it happened to me at a fairly young age. But for my brother, he had to spend 10 years in the Air Force. He graduated from Southern Illinois University while in the Air Force. He took a, a entry level job at some playing card company as an engineer. Then he got a job at Ford Motor Company. Then he and his, he got married, he and his wife bought some property, some apartment buildings. He still works at Ford. And they have, I've watched them over the course of 20, 25 years build wealth and get into a spot where they, they own a really nice home. They take six very nice vacations a year. They have, you know, they, they, they got a nice life. They built it together. That's the process. Marriage is a business decision as much as it is a heart decision, if not more of a business decision than a heart decision for people to do it properly. I, I'm gonna ask one more question about this and then I'm gonna move on to last night's college football game. Uh, I look at these Inspire Change commercials as the compromise solution the NFL made with the NFL players uh, to get them to quit kneeling during the national anthem. 
And I think it's a terrible compromise. I actually think these commercials, they're not happening during the game. The media is not focusing on them. Uh, but I actually think it's a far more dangerous message and more per, uh, insidious, more, it's just, it's a worse message than Kaepernick and a handful of players kneeling during the national anthem. I, I, I think Sunday after Sunday, sending out the message that black people, you're victims, and you're gonna make 10,000 less than someone equally qualified. And it, it, all these little Twitter thoughts, because they're trying to unpack really complicated issues in a 30 second commercial, and this woman said that we're over police, we're overcharged, we're over in car. Man, people have written book after book after book about the criminal justice situ uh, system, and to think that some woman can distill it down to a two or three second sound bite is a joke. These commercials to me are worse than Kaepernick kneeling, even though people aren't talking about it. It's, it's not as polarizing an issue, but I actually think this was the actual intent of Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. It was, it was, he was a Trojan horse to usher in this Marxist victim uh, narrative marry it to the NFL and its work, I think the commercials are worse than Kaepernick kneeling. We should define worse because it's reaching far less people. I haven't watched a commercial in 20 years. And so that, you know, it's like <laughs> any, anyone my age is not watching commercials. They're, uh, in fact, I, I've got a um, niece and nephew who are, they're around the ages of, of five and six. And um, they have, they are so foreign to television that because they watch Netflix and different things all the time, there are no commercials. They don't even know what a commercial is. Seriously, they, they can't figure out what happened to their show. As soon as the commercial comes on, they try to change the channel because they think something just happened to their show. Nobody watches commercials. So as far as like, is it worse? The message is worse. I think that's true. It's reaching way less people, which is what I think the NFL banked on. The NFL understands that if we throw something in a commercial, we're not going to have to discuss it with ESPN every week. We're not going to have our ratings tank through the floor. We're not all going to be worse off. Uh, I, I do think the message is terrible. I also think there are lies. I mean, I sent you uh, when when we were texting back and forth the other night, I sent you the actual truth behind these things. It's very frustrating when people throw out narratives that are absolute lies. This, this by the way, is why I love this show, because I, I think this show focuses on culture. It, it doesn't, what conservatives, you know why we lose? Because we try to counter bad ideas with statistics, which is what I, you know, which is what I'm about to do. What you are doing with your monologue is you are countering a really bad idea with a more powerful idea that trumps that. And that is that I am a strong man and I don't need your permission to stand up on my own two feet, exist and succeed. So just get out of my way. I don't need you to tell me if I can or can. I don't need your approval. I don't even want your approval. If you're talking to me this way, you're not useful in my life. That's what you basically stood up and said. You said everybody should be acting as though uh, this is the truth because that's how you succeed. And so that is a more powerful message than, yes, I understand you're not succeeding um, and it's his fault. So I am, a, uh, I am an admirer of Jordan B. Peterson. He is a clinical psychologist and... Um, 
world round at this point. And he was asked one time because he's, you know, he's really exactly what you just said. He didn't become famous until he was in like his late fifties. So he did like 30 or 40 years worth of work to then become YouTube famous. And now he goes and tours all around the world. And so he, they, he was asked, how have you made such a big impact specifically because his audience skews young male and go. So he's like, he said, here's what's happening. I can't believe we're not talking to people about this. People come in and say, my life is terrible. And everybody's just agreeing with them and making excuses for why it's terrible. And that's the worst possible message you could tell someone. Instead, you say, yes, it's bad. And here's how it could be better. And you tell them over and over, you have a whole group of people that's saying, it's, it's actually not that bad. And if it is bad, it's because it's their fault and you have no control. Why would you want to continue on in your life if everybody around you who has lived before you and is supposed to be advising you on how to be better with your life is telling you that it's really not going to get any better and really it's just that guy's fault over there instead of saying your life does suck and it sucks and it's your fault and if you would stand up and do something about it you could really make some progress here and so that i think is the message that you're teaching again that's why i enjoy being a part of this show because i think you're, you're preaching a cultural message that is more powerful than the victimhood message that is getting no one anywhere all right i want to switch to last night's uh Championship game, Georgia knocked off Alabama, kind of just as I said, uh, but I, I don't feel the greatest about it because Alabama lost uh, its star wide receiver, Jamison Williams, in the first half of that game. Felt that really compromised their offense, particularly in the second half. Uh, Georgia comes back, wins 33 to 18, I believe. Uh, they have a pick six late that really turned it into a blowout. But uh, Stetson Bennett is getting a lot of credit and he's, you know, this incredible story. He's, he's a walk on that always wanted to play at Georgia and he takes them to their first national championship in 40 years. I actually though think Stetson Bennett, that angle is being a bit overhyped. I, I think if, that receiver stays healthy for Alabama, and then they had already lost their number two or number one receiver in the SEC championship game against Georgia a few weeks ago or maybe a month ago. Uh, it's a totally different game, and so I, I think Stetson Bennett's impact is a bit overblown uh, because Georgia got a tiny bit lucky, and again, I'm someone that predicted Georgia was going to win this thing, but I don't feel real good about it. I think the Stetson Bennett thing is a wonderful story and it should be about his overcoming and being the guy. I mean, you know, his story where you walk on left when he realized there was really no room for him. Uh, then Justin Fields transfers out after he goes to junior college, he actually comes back, still has no chances, basically told to transfer and then end up being the starting quarterback and winning the national championship. That's a hell of a story, man. It's worth talking about. It's just not the story of the SEC championship game. I think you're exactly right about the story of the SEC championship game. And guys like you and I who understand how things like that can affect an offense. Michi was a guy who um, he was probably the number one and he was the reliable guy. Uh, Jamison Williams was the big play guy. As we saw, he got hurt on what was a 40 or 50 yard catch that may have gone for a touchdown if he didn't blow out his ACL trying to, to make a cut. He was the guy that opened it up, but they also didn't have anybody to throw to. The offense went from uh, in the 
first quarter when Jameson Williams was healthy, where they had guys who knew what they were doing. He could wait for routes to develop. He knew certain tendencies. I mean, as a quarterback, you've got to have a lot of trust in your guy that's running the route because he's going to have certain things about him. He's going to play some games. He's going to do things that you wouldn't see out of a typical straight line route. Uh, and that's how he gets open. And you're willing to give him the leeway to do that so that once he does get open, you are still staying there in the pocket. Maybe you take a hit. It's taken a little extra beat, but you can deliver as Bryce Young has done all season. And you've got uh, a big play. He wasn't willing to do that with the young guys. In fact, he tried with the young guys three or four times. I mean, there were some unbelievable drops by those Alabama freshmen backup receivers. That'll be stars someday. They always are, but they weren't last night. And so the offense turned into run play, screen pass, pass to the running back out of the backfield over and over and over again. They did throw it to the tight end a few times who did the best he could, but it's like at some point he gets a really good defense when you're the only threat. Good luck. So I do think it was about the receivers. I think it was, uh, as we saw, uh, Michi got hurt in the first game and they still were able to do it. I think they probably could have done it yesterday. And you heard me uh, on the show yesterday. I actually thought Georgia would win it. But after seeing what was happening, Georgia didn't come out and, and wear them down. Georgia didn't come out and, it, you know, it was a battle early on. And I think the battles with Alabama and the big play guys that they had always lean their direction. So uh, had those guys been healthy, I think Alabama does win. But the story of Bennett, I think, again, worth talking about because that's a guy who overcame and he overcame and he overcame. And after the national championship, you know, you're finding a way to talk about the guy that's the most interesting story, not the guy that was necessarily the star of the game. So Williamson's in, Williams' injury, could this have impact down the road? We, we've seen guys jump out of inconsequential bowl games and not risk injury. Now we've seen someone who's headed for the first round of the NFL draft, maybe a top 10, top five type pick. Uh, seen as I think the number one receiver coming out in this draft, he he gets a knee injury. Could we see a player down the road potentially opt out of the playoffs? It's a good question, and and you and Steve talked about this last week, I think. And and your position is that you would not have a problem if they did, right? Because the coaches leave and such. None whatsoever. Okay. None whatsoever. I, uh, I would have a major problem if they did. And it's got nothing to do with the coaches. I don't I don't make my decisions uh, personally and my expectations for people based on what I think are poor decisions from other people. And I think that leaving a coach leaving in the middle of the system, what, what Brian Kelly just did leaving before the bowl game. In fact, when Notre Dame still had a chance to be in the playoff, he is he is the. Um, the perfect example for you had had games gone the other way. He already left for LSU and Notre Dame could have had a spot in the playoff and he was gone. So I hate that. I don't think one person's indiscretions should lead to others. And I, and I think, I think it is an indictment on the character of the person who's doing it. And I don't want that guy on my team. So I can only think of one guy recently that's been good enough and big enough that I, that nearly everyone would want on their team and, and I wouldn't. And that's Antonio Brown. I could see Antonio Brown being the guy that would opt out of the playoff. And I, and guess what? There's not a single guy that would be on his team that would be surprised if he did that. And those are not the type of guys that you want on your team. You think about, you think about what it takes to become a high level division one college football player. You and I had to do it. You get up at four 30, five o'clock in the morning and you sacrifice your sleep 
and your time and sometimes your sanity to go work out. You do it before school because you got to go to practice right after school. And you do that. I started working out when I was in the sixth grade. I was lifting weights up at the high school. My dad would go drop me off at the high school. We would get up. He would he would sit outside, wait for me to work out, and then he would drive me to the middle school. And we did that for several years until I went to high school and then did the same thing. So you are trained to see that sacrifice and discipline leads to success. And so you're at some point you're hardwired. You know that I have to throw this block. It's going to hurt my head a little bit, but we are going to score a touchdown. Sacrifice, success. And it's pretty immediate in football, too. And so you go down the line and you'd say, okay, well, what what have I done my entire life in order to get to this point and succeed? And it's always sacrifice. There is no success without sacrifice. And if you happen to win the lottery, if you go look at the statistics on that, then you lose all your money pretty quickly because you have no idea what it took to get there. Discipline and sacrifice always lead to success, right? I should say at least come before it. You don't always get the success, but usually. By the way, this is, I mean, two Christian guys talking, this is the story of Jesus. Sacrifice rose three days later, success. Like it is, it is in our DNA. It is in our blood. It's the, we, we not only have been taught it, but we innately know this. And so to then have a have a you, your, it's like an onion, right? Of the people that matter when you're making a decision. It's you, then you, there's your family, then there's your team and coaches outside of that, then maybe the fans and the administrators outside of that, and then the idiots like you and I out here discussing about what they should do, right? So it's like you have all these people you're considering who should be, uh, what should I be doing? And I have to have all this in. The people that have ridden with you, your parents, your teammates, the guys who got up with you at 6 a.m. every day and made those sacrifices. I don't think it's in the DNA of any of these guys that actually are able to succeed at this level to then opt out when you finally reach the pinnacle of what you can do. You have worked your entire life, got to the college football playoff, the biggest game of your life, and you're going to opt out and you're going to abandon all your boys who helped get you there. There's no success without sacrifice, and and I don't see it anytime soon. And if we do see it, I'm not drafting that kid. Look. The problem, TJ, is, and I got to let you go, but, and we we can pick up this later, but you got to define success for yourself. And so your definition seems to be a lot about team success. I don't know what Jamison Williams, what he thinks success looks like. It might be being the number one pick in the draft or in the top five, or the biggest signing bonus, or whatever. And so he's made a bunch of sacrifices. Is it for Alabama to win, or is it for Jamison Williams to make it to the NFL, take care of himself and his family moving forward? And so I just think if Jamison Williams or any athlete says, but let's take him in particular, if, if he says, man, I'm going to play in this national championship game, but I'm going to hurt my knee, and there's a receiver at Purdue named David Bell, went to my high school, who is down in Miami training for the combine and the draft so he can run the fastest 40 time. And, and right now David Bell is seen as a high second-round pick. Uh, but let's say David Bell uncorks a 4-4-9, 4-4-8, 40-yard dash. And, and takes all, because there's questions about his top end speed. If he takes that question off the board, and, and does David Bell move up higher in the draft past Jamison Williams? 
and, and Williams is sitting there saying, man, I've just hurt my definition of success being as drafted as high as I could at Alabama because I promise you, most of those guys that go to Alabama, they're coming there because they want Nick Saban and that coaching staff to get them to the NFL. Winning the national champ, that's going to be nice and they'll enjoy the ring and they'll enjoy going down in history. But when you get a scholarship to Alabama to play football, you're thinking about the NFL more than you're thinking about winning a national championship. So I'm going to let you go on that note. Uh, I want to tell you about our friends over at Sweatblock. Uh, they have been instrumental in helping me overcome my sweat problems. You know, I'm a big guy. Uh, when I'm delivering my blazing fire starters right here on the show, I used to get a little sweaty, but thanks to sweat block, not anymore. Now, I never have to worry about having unsightly sweat stains on my clothes. Sweat block is stronger and more effective than most clinical antiperspirants. And here's the beauty of it. It's so simple. Use it in the morning before you start your day and you are going to be good for that entire day. No need to worry about sweat all day, guaranteed. Sweat block is a complete game changer and you need to get it right now. If you or someone you love is dealing with this, you have to check out sweatblock.com. Get it today for 20% off at sweatblock.com with the promo code FEARLESS. That's sweatblock.com, promo code FEARLESS. All right, when we come back, Shamika Michelle, we're going to talk about the rapper Jim Jones learning to French kiss from his mom. Next. All right, welcome back. Uh, time for uh, Shamika Michelle Smoke Show. Uh, and we'll change a little bit. We'll get off uh, a little football conversation and talk about something that uh, Shamika and I both found interesting late last week. The rapper Jim Jones, I believe, was in a podcast interview and was talking about how his mother taught him the French kid. I think we got the clip. Let's, let's play the clip. What did your mom tell you about sex when you were she young? She told me everything about sex. Like what? My, my first condoms, shit like that. My mom always told me how to kiss when I was younger. What did she tell you to do? <laughs> she told me how to tongue kiss when I was younger. Like, like what's the instructions? It wasn't no instructions. She showed me with her mouth. Like she. She, she kissed you. It's my mother. No, I'm just asking. Okay? Oh, my parents never. My parents kissed me. Barely kissed me on the cheek. No, so my mom I just stopped she, kissing she showed my son me how to, She showed me how to tongue kiss when I was younger. Remember, my mom was 17. She's a baby. Look at all the babies that's yeah. having babies now. Sure. And, act, and look how they act with their babies. It's like we they like have a little besties. sister or a little brother yeah, you more than they had. Did, did, you think, did you think tongue kissing was nasty at first? Because the first time somebody tried to tongue kiss me, I thought it was so disgusting. Um, the first time I tongue kissed a girl, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, the you swear My mom's, it didn't phase me. The first time I tongue kissed a girl, I was blown, I was so pissed off. I didn't know what the f was going on. <laughs> All right, Shamika, help me out here. Let me gather my thoughts. That's, I, I read about this story. It's the first time I heard the conversation, but I, I just think this speaks to the inappropriate relationship a lot of parents have with their kids. 
Yes, and I think it speaks to the dysfunction that we as a culture or the black community, we accept and we don't like to call out. When he said that when he first kissed uh, a woman, uh, it was very uncomfortable, but when he kissed his mom, it was okay. That screams all types of red flags. But notice no one on the panel even discussed it further because that to me just says we like to accept dysfunction. The, the uh, statistics say that one in six young boys are sexually abused. They say that it's almost impossible to find out what the statistics are in the black community because it's under-acknowledged, under-reported, and under-treated. And this is is crazy to me that he sat on a panel full of people and said this and no one wanted to discuss it anymore. That was crazy to me. That part doesn't surprise me because part of the American media culture and environment and the just take media out of it. We live in such an idolatrous culture that anybody that has any level of fame and any money, whatever they do is okay. And whatever they've done must be attributed to their success. And, and so you don't question, well, he's successful. He's a millionaire. He's a popular rapper. So if his mother taught him to tongue kiss, that must be a good thing. And that, that to me speaks to the evil and satanic nature that we've built in popular culture and on all these media platforms. It, it, they are platforms for celebrities to share all the perverted and dysfunctional things that they've done and do to influence young people. Because again, a lot of young people I'm sure are watching this and heck, there's probably some young boy and maybe some young 17, 18 year old, 19 year old mother that will watch this and say, I should teach my son how to French kiss. Uh, I, 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 the whole thing is just, I watch stuff like that and then I just, I just, I become a bit more hopeless and I'm trying to avoid being hopeless, but it's just like, how do you get this toothpaste back in the bottle? Yeah, that's what we really need to discuss, especially when you talk about are we making black men leaders? We need to really start at the black boys, you know, and when you say that they allow celebrities to pretty much share anything and do anything, we've had a lot of celebrities to talk about losing their virginity at, at young ages when it comes to males. Chris Brown said he was eight years old and lost his virginity to a 15 year old girl. I think about when my daughters were eight years old, I would have lost my mind had a 15 year old boy taken their virginity. But instead, when it's when it comes to being males, it's celebrated and it's looked at as if it, it's, you know, that, that means they're a man. Boosie talks about getting his 15 year old or 14 year old son some oral sex for his birthday. And some people were upset, but for the most part, people applauded it. But psychologists have said that this causes men to have 
uh, difficult relationships when they grow up. They have a hard time trusting people. They look at people as if they're dishonest. So when we talk about the fact that black men are not marrying as you were talking about with the coaches and they have all of these baby mamas, we need to go back to what's happening to them as little boys, because regardless of what you say, it makes them a man. Boys are not men. And we are allowing our little boys to be abused very young because this is textbook examples of, of, of abuse that we are turning a blind eye to, that we are ignoring. And no, they're not going to be good leaders when they're dealing with so much as, as a young person. You know, so many of our young boys have to take on the role of being the provider when they are in a single parent home. I've seen young boys go to prison at 15, 16 years old for selling drugs, trying to take care of the mother who acts like it's, it's no big deal because she's benefiting from it. I see this all the time and I wish that we would actually, you know, we got to catch it early because to get them to, you know, 30 and 40 year old men and say, hey, what's going on here? We need to start catching this at seven and eight years old when we are allowing black boys to be abused in the home. The, the, this takes me so many different places in terms of it is connected to the conversation TJ and I were having about is the culture preparing black boys and black men for leadership positions, and they're not. And, and then I also made the argument, there's th this thing that has been defined as black culture, and rap has a lot to do with this, and celebrity culture has a lot to do with this. I'm very comfortable in saying, I don't want anything to do with it. I, I, I really don't. And I, I think that we as black people need to ask ourselves, do, are, are we sure this is the culture we want representing us? Is this the identity we should want to take on? And again, and, and Shamika, I know that you've had problems with the church, but this is why, again, when I start talking about uh, a Christian identity, I'm not really talking about the church. I, I'm talking more about a biblical worldview, and I'm trying to lean into a biblical worldview and a Christian identity. Whether that's attached to a church or not is, you know, not as important as am I living a Christ-like life to the best of my ability every day and trying to uh, live up to those standards as opposed to wanting to be comfortable and popular and a part of this very secular, popular culture that we've built that I just don't see any positive benefits from. I, I don't, I, I get it, for Jim Jones, he's making a lot of money. So I guess that's a positive benefit for him, that, that is. But for me as a consumer and someone who's not a rapper, Someone who doesn't want, because wasn't that Angela Yee, I think, that was interviewing yes. her? About, she must have mm -hmm. her own little podcast away from the breakfast. I don't want, this is what made me such a weirdo out in, when I lived in Los Angeles. I didn't want nothing to do with them people. I, I, I really didn't. 
I got my little group of friends and not that my little group of friends are all saints because some of them certainly are not. Uh, but that whole little celebrity world of weirdos and, and just anything goes and they'll take any drug, they'll sleep with anybody. I just, I didn't want any part of that. And, and, and that's the more, I guess the older I get just, the more comfortable I get with just like, that ain't me. And if that makes me a sellout for saying, I, I don't want to be involved with that, I'm cool being a sellout. That's the same way I feel, Jason. After raising three children, it doesn't bother me at all when people say I'm a sellout or I'm a coon. Like what I'm not gonna do is raise my daughters to be out here dropping it low and spreading it wide for anybody. I'm not going to raise them like that. So if that makes me a sellout, I'm gonna sell you out all day long. I know what I did as a young person. There were things that I did that were not right. I'm gonna teach my daughters differently. So it doesn't bother me when I'm not in certain circles. You know, I don't want to, you know, I'm not looking to be invited on the breakfast club. I'm not looking to be on the shade room every time you turn around. You're not going to want to hear what I have to say, because what I don't like is the fact that we as black people, we feel like we have this rule that you can't say certain stuff when white people are listening. Listen, that is so now that we have social media, that's dumb. White people can see exactly what's going on in the community that we act like people can't see. They can see that we have sores that are oozing pus and blood and need to be attended to. So the idea that we don't need to speak about certain things when we're in front of white people or on white platforms and it, I think that's silly now because at the just at the you know scroll of your finger, you can see the things that we act as if we want to hide. So I am about addressing problems in the community. I'm about talking about the hard things. And I don't care if that means I don't get to be in certain circles. I don't care if that means I don't get to be invited on certain platforms. I have three children that I have to be accountable to, and I want them to be adult women that are not out here looking crazy and acting foolishly. So yes, I have no problem saying, okay, peace out. I'm, I'm fine with that because I'm not going to be the person that a lot of people want me to be. I'm not the person that I used to be. I, I have evolved. And if that means that I can't be in the cool kids club, I'm all right with that. Shamika. I got to let you go. Great job. Uh, hope to see you here uh, in town next week in studio with us. Uh, go get your fearless swag at shopblazemedia.com backslash fearless. All right, Professor D. Delano. All right, welcome back. All right, time to bring on the smartest man on the show, uh, Professor D. Delano Squires. He's written a column for The Blaze today, uh, and it's bouncing off of, and I, I think many of you probably saw the headline, uh, the, the LA Times column about mocking anti-vaxxers, death is ghoulish, yes, but necessary. 
and Delano talks about how this perfectly captures the current direction of American social life and how we have these new God kings and big government being <laughs> our newest God and they're using uh, the vaccine and COVID uh, to rule us. But uh, Delano, I, let me let you do the column full justice and explain in full the point you were trying to make. Sure. Um, so Jason, my, my main point is that um, we are in a new era of American life. So, you know, when the first country first started, we, we were in the colonial era. And then, you know, we had the Revolutionary War. Eventually we moved into um, the Civil War era. Then Reconstruction, Jim Crow, Civil Rights, then post-Civil Rights era. And, and I would argue the advent of COVID has uh, ushered in the era of the God King. And, and when I say the God Kings, I'm sort of hearkening back to the ways in which um, ancient pagan deities. So anyone who's seen the movie 300 would recognize this from the, the, the one character who's, you know, like a, he was a God King. So he stood above everyone else. He was adorned with gold and, and he thought he was untouchable. And, and my argument is that, you know, our God Kings really sort of take the form of an un, un, what I call an unholy trinity of big government, big business and big media. Um, and all three of these interests work together. Um, they demand absolute obedience and, and fealty from the population. Um, they are in the business of imposing diktats and, and orders and decrees outside of our normal um, processes of, of legislation. Um, they do not allow for any debate or dissent. Um, so th those two things can get you either fired or kicked off of social media or shunned you know, by, by your friends and family. And, and really, um, at the crux of this is, is the decline in religious affiliation among Americans, which has been a, a, a slow but steady decline um, over decades. Um, and also the, the increase in um, the number of people who identify with no religion, what we call religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And those two things, so the, dec the decline of faith, and particularly Christianity, um, the ascension of secular humanism and atheism, and then the growth of particularly uh, big government, as I said, big business and big media, have all brought us to this particular place. Um, because people naturally have an innate desire to worship something. Some worship, you know, a, a traditional religion, some worship science, some worship their own mind. But as our country has grown more secular and the government has grown bigger, um, the two things are interacting in a way. And as I said, this is what I would describe as the, as the era, the God King. And that L.A. Times column was a perfect reflection of it. Here you have a member of the media who does not see his job as, you know, questioning authority, um, holding the powerful accountable. He thinks his job is to parrot the talking points of the power, powerful and hold 
the powerless responsible for all of the social outcomes, in this case, COVID deaths, that he he doesn't agree with. And, and he is willing to mock people who are dead in an effort to teach a lesson to those who are still alive. And that lesson is very clear. You get on board, obey, submit, or you too will be mocked in death. I'm shocked that the LA Times would run this column. And, and particularly, his target is a woman. In, in terms mm. the primary, some GOP politician or whatever, he's mocking. And, and again, this is where I, chivalry is dead, traditional masculinity is dead. All the, for a man to be writing a column mocking the death of some woman just seems beyond the pale uh, for me. And, and particularly, you know, if I roll the clock back 10 years, I just can't imagine this ever would have happened. And I, Kevin Merida, uh, they used to work at the Washington Post back when the Washington Post was somewhat of a legitimate newspaper. He, he replaced me at the Undefeated and, and is now at the LA Times. I'm just like, man, this is where journalism has gone that we can mock people's death and particularly a woman's death a man to be mocking a woman's death all because she disagreed with him about taking a vaccine and this just seems crazy to me and and but but you know your column hammers a point that I we've been talking a lot about on this show since you know its inception six seven months ago is is everybody is leaning into their political identity that's mm -hmm. their primary identity. And, and again, when you lean into a political identity as opposed to an identity based around your faith, it frees you to do a lot of things that you wouldn't do if your identity was, identity was primarily based on Jesus, the Bible, the Quran, any, anything, Torah, mm -hmm. anything. But, but so as a Democrat, mocking a Republican's death, no problem. As a Christian, mocking anyone's death would be a problem. Uh, but I mean, this is a secular society, all bets are off, and you can be as cruel as you wanna be uh, to anybody, I guess. And we really saw this. I think, to me, the most um, notable example of this was when Herman Cain passed away um, relatively early on in the pandemic. And, you know, he, he had been at a rally, uh, I think, for, for the former president, President Trump, and he wasn't wearing a mask and he wasn't social distancing. And when, you know, people learned that he was in the hospital, there were a lot of cruel jokes you know, at his dispense. And certainly after he, he passed away. But I think a, a big part of it is, to your point, in terms of them are allowing this to run about a woman is that, again, given the era that we're in, this woman committed the, the greatest sin, which is to hold politics that are slightly right of center um, and to question sort of the prevailing narrative. Right? And, and really what we're getting, and this starts in our, in our public schools, 
into our colleges and universities, through all, throughout all of our media, is the average American is getting bathed nonstop in religious dogma. Um, we don't necessarily see it that way, but when someone, for instance, like Ibram Kendi comes out and articulates his views on race, right, when he defines racism circularly by talking about racist policies and racist attitudes, and, and says that to not hold to his definition, right, or to not act in ways that are anti-racist means that you are um, accommodating racism. And he says that you must believe this. And the school districts that pay him, um, the, the publishers, the people who have him come and speak at conferences, they all accept that dogma. And that that dogma is being pushed onto us, as I said, in school most prominently, but even um, I, I saw briefly the, the text of, I think a, a law that's being proposed or, or um, a, a policy that's being proposed in public health that uses his framework that basically says the only way to um, correct for past discrimination is present discrimination, and the only way to correct for present discrimination is future discrimination. Um, these are, these are, to me, religious beliefs, right? They are unquestionable, at least from his perspective. They're not debated. No one asks for proof or evidence. Um, and I, I really, you know, in many respects, this is how they are uh, operating. Now, what it does, Jason, and I, and I think this is important, particularly for Christians to hear, if atheists and secularists and secular humanists and non-believers non of one stripe or another feel comfortable proselytizing and pushing their religious dogma, right, in the public square than social Christians. If I'm going to be lectured by a minor prophet like Ibram Kendi or Robin DiAngelo as they read from their sacred texts and they, and they tell me that there are 65 genders, sex is assigned at birth, there are no differences between male and female, and that birthing persons include men who can get pregnant, then I should feel quite comfortable saying, no, um, I believe the Genesis account that says God created male and female. Because if, if everyone is practicing their religion, then we should have equal access to the public square. And that's that's one of the things that I would argue. And I think the only way we come out of this, this era of the God King, because, again, these are people who love to be worshipped. Look at how Dr. Fauci went from a nameless government bureaucrat who served in multiple presidential administrations for well over 30 plus years to being on the cover of magazines to um to having dolls made in his likeness, uh, to people saying that they want their Fauci ouchie when they get vaccinated, and he's soaking it in. So what we're seeing again is, is the ascendancy of a, of a particular, you know, religious fervor. And I think, and I said at the end of my column, people can, they, everyone is going to have to make a decision. It's either we continue to allow this to go on to worship these people, to obey them, to act as if they, they are God kings, or we worship the true and living God. And to, to paraphrase the scripture, um, you know, we each have to choose who we're going to serve today. The one thing 
I keep holding out hope for is that the publishing of columns like this in the LA Times and the new information like the CDC's having to cop to about COVID, that COVID is actually going to backfire on the left, that it's, mm. it's leading to an awakening. I saw someone, I know it's just one tweet, but, but it's something that I feel, because it's part of my conversation with people, friends of mine that are non-believers, that I've seen start like asking me questions about Christianity, have started mm. telling me like, I get it now. And <laughs> I get, and, and, and I, think, I think we're even seeing it from someone like Bill Maher. Uh, again, I don't think he's ever gonna be religious, but I do think he's starting to figure out, oh, there's benefits to a Judeo-Christian culture that even apply to me as a non-believer. And that's, so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this COVID thing is actually not gonna lead to a great reset, but a great awakening. And that mm. even people that will still stand firm, hey, I'm an atheist, I think will understand like, you know what, a Christian culture actually serves atheists well and better than this secular culture that we're building. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and I mean, we never know whether it's Bill Maher or, or Joe Rogan or other people who are, at times have been antagonistic to, to Christianity. Um, you know, God can can save any person and no one is too is too far from from, you know, repentance and, and faith. Um, but I, I, I think one of the things that I know from my, my personal life, and I say this as, you know, a, a guy who has a kid, you know, grew up in the church and went to church when I went to college and, you know, didn't, I'm not saying I, I lived a, a life reflective of the scriptures, but I've always in one way or another sort of been in church. But what I've seen over the last couple of years is my faith has grown one in part because I think I'm sitting under better teaching and, and I, I'm understanding the scriptures more. But part of it, Jason, is when when you are in a culture um, where there's a certain baseline level of morality, where everyone agrees that robbing granny is a bad thing, that driving drunk is a bad thing, that cheating on your wife is a bad thing, then the 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 really bright light doesn't necessarily stand out as much because all of the lights are on but when you turn down most of the lights and and the block gets darker and darker where now the the people who basically run our society who are control the people the progressives or what I call the subversives who run the media and academia, um, you know, in, in many of our governing institutions, certainly in charge of our biggest cities, when those people think that 10-year-old boys who dress up as women and perform in clubs in front of other men, that that's a good thing. When they, again, use terms like birthing person non-ironically, you know, when they actually believe that people other than women can get pregnant, um, 
when those things become more prevalent in your society and and all of those houses grow darker and darker, that one light starts to shine a lot brighter. And I think even people who weren't necessarily looking for it understand that, hey, um, our sort of shift into a focus on material wealth and material resources and away from morality is not serving anyone. And I think this is the point that you're making, right? Our, our elected officials, our cultural commentators, they don't even talk morals anymore. Anytime, for instance, we're talking about crime, it always goes back to, oh, such and such person doesn't have enough resources. It's, it's never about right or wrong. So it's always they don't have resources. Now, these people never explain why your garden variety gangster rapper is much more likely to be, uh, you know, arrested and charged with a violent gun crime after he's gotten his big deal compared to his you know, working class cousin who grew up with two parents, you know, in the church. And I, and I could tick down a list of rappers who've gotten arrested for serious crimes after they got money. Um, and this is not just a, a, a rap thing, but this whole notion that all of life is, is, is the material, is what we can see and touch. It's money, it's wealth, it's resources. Nothing is inherently moral. Um, I don't think that that's serving anyone. Um, and it's certainly hurting the people who, you know, tend to, to suffer from the God Kings who, who push these policies, whether those are, you know, people in, in big cities or, or just Americans, you know, throughout the country. Um, it's, it's hurting all of us. Before I let you go, I want to ask you if you had any thoughts about my opening uh, monologue and my column today about basically leftist ideology is in our adoption of it as our identity as black men and black people is, is taking us out of the path for actual leadership away from the profile of a typical leader. I was wondering if you had any reaction to what TJ and I talked about earlier in the show. Yeah, sure. So I, I, I agree with your, um, your general point and sentiment. I, I do think that leftist ideology is cancerous for Americans in general, and particularly for um, the black community that has been steeped in it for generations. Um, I personally believe that the black community needs a populist revolt, um, bottom up, where we just dethrone all of the people who have been using us as pawns um, in their game to acquire more power for themselves. So. You know, the people listening to me today pick whoever's your favorite celebrity who's most likely to show up at the BET Awards and or promote some alternative lifestyle uh, for, for the new Netflix, Netflix series. And that's that's the person I'm talking about. All those people need to go. But I think the specific point, um, I, I'd have to, to you know, really give this some more thought, because generally speaking, I think that profile that you set up. Um, is true for NFL head coaches, regardless of race. Um, you, you mentioned Mike Tomlin, you know, Brian, Brian Flores. Most of these guys, again, across the board, tend to be stable, family-oriented individuals. And I think you would see that in, um, you know, coaches, you know, across the board, and, and certainly in football. Um, I, I can't speak as much to basketball. I think the NBA definitely lends itself to you know, again, more uh, alternative lifestyles. 
But um, I think in the NFL, even the black coaches sort of fit that profile. Now, most people was, would then question, well, why is it that someone like Eric Bieniemy has not gotten an interview or gotten a chance to, to coach a team? And I know he's had you know issues in his past, but I think they would question that, and then they would say, you know, what, why is it? Why doesn't Bieniemy get mentioned, or uh, Todd Bowles get mentioned when these jobs come up? But someone early in the season, like again, the offensive coordinator for my team, Kellen Moore, mid-season, people are saying, oh, he's definitely going to be a head coach next season. So I, I think those are legitimate questions. Um, but as I said, I also agree with your main point that there is a particular profile for for NFL head coaches. And I agree with the the other overarching point is is that the NFL's Inspire Change campaign is a is a load of hot garbage, um, and I say that with all due respect. Um, I, I just I've I've seen a couple of the commercials, the person dancing in the background. Like I don't understand any of that stuff. Um, <laughs> and 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 then the, the the statistics that they're citing again. This is like it's put together by a middle schooler. One of the guys said, oh, I, I live in a neighborhood where if I get the same job as a white guy, they're going to pay me $10,000 less just because I'm black. Now, someone who has a basic understanding of economics would say, well, if, that's, if an employer knows he can get away with paying equally qualified black and white applicants the same amount of money, then all they would hire is black people because they would cut their largest overhead expense, which is salary. But that's really not what these people are saying. They just they get a statistic. They, they measure at the median. Um, you know, sort of income that's being earned and they compare black to white. And I mean, it's really juvenile stuff. And when I hear about the over-incarceration and over-police, I immediately think of of the 500-plus murder victims in Philadelphia or the people in New York City who are howling because their new district attorney has decided there's an entire section of the penal code that he no longer wants to um, enforce. So I just... I, I, a lot of these athletes, I think, I think they are well-intentioned, but they, they are just pawns. Um, and these are guys that get on board the BLM train and have no idea what BLM stands for. Um, and as I said, these are the people who I think need to be dethroned um, because they are leading all of us over a cliff. All right, not gonna debate you today about the coaches deal or, or add further context. I'm gonna let you go. Uh, great job, okay. as always. Uh, go to YouTube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hit those subscribes, hit the notifications. Make sure you're giving me that five-star review on Apple. Uh, we need as many of them as we can, can get. Support this fearless army by supporting me over YouTube and over Apple and any place you're accessing uh, our show. Uh, Uncle Jimmy and our approval rating for uh, Stetson Bennett. We must exist in a state of man glorious as we are protected by the red, the white, and the blue. But remember, the mind is the key. The fearless soldier pledges to place God first and foremost in his everyday endeavors of life. We, the fearless army, are one nation under God, indivisible 
with freedom and a belief in the American dream. The men bold enough to join our movement comprise what we like to call the new dream team. We are leaders of our families, our churches, and of this nation. We reject the seeds of division that are planted by corporate media misinformation. We affirm that all men are created equal and are endowed with inalienable rights, which are granted by our Heavenly Father. We are bound by honor to accept God's challenge, to take the flag and lead, to cherish, to protect, and to nurture the life of our unborn seed. I am a fearless soldier, so shed no tears for me. I am not a victim. I am the man that God made me to be. Amen. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. Uh, probably one of my best shows ever uh, in the history of, of me uh, doing anything in front of a kid. Jim, you, I mean, seriously, I mean, <laughs> after that fire I started today and engagement with TJ, Shamika, and Delano, uh, before we get to our Stetson Bennett review, uh, go, <laughs> I mean, could I have done any better? You're absolutely right, Jason. Uh, TJ was great. Delano was great. Shamika was great. And you was fat. What the hell else you want me to say, man? Come on, man. Get to it, man. Let, 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 let's get on to it. TJ, so damn great. How come with all of this NFL analogy and what they, and, and we're talking about, talking about did the Did you almost drop the N-word? No. <laughs> no, I did not. I did not. What you thought I was going to say, nagger? <laughs> no, stop it, man. I'm just simply saying, man, if, if, if he's so smart, why, why is it, has anybody made the analogy and compared the game last night? And what's his name, Stetson, Stetson Bennett? Did anybody make that analogy and compare him to Rudy last night? A real-life All-American Rudy. Did anybody make the comparison last night? I mean, it, when it was a movie, it, you thought it was fictional. But you had it in your face last night. A man that, what, what, what did Rudy want to do? He wanted to play for the Irish. What did that little dude last night? All he wanted to do was what? Play for Georgia. Play for Georgia. His daddy played for Georgia, right? And see, check this out. Here's, here's what you missed. His daddy wasn't a star for Georgia, was he? His daddy was on the team, but he never played it down, did he? But did it stop him from going on and achieving what he wanted to do? No, it didn't. What did his daddy do, Jason? Did you listen to this? Did you hear this? Do you know what his daddy did? His daddy didn't go on to become an NFL player, you know, he went on and became a pharmacist. And you know what he did? He went out, and I don't know if y'all heard this, but the man built a football field next to his pharmacy. Now you know what that is? You know what that is? is? Is that or is that not some real Field of Dreams crap? Remember the movie Field of Dreams? Remember they went out and built the baseball field? Remember that? what they say? If you build it, they'll come. I mean, this is a real American story, man. Why, why are we not jumping on this? Jim, this may be some of your best work. I'm going to have to do some contemplating. The Rudy angle, and the, the Rudy angle is amazing because that, that is what we saw. We just saw a real-life version of Rudy. Stetson Bennett is just like Rudy. 
He was white and too short. He was a walk-on. You know, Rudy only got in for one play. <laughs> it don't matter. I get it. This is like, this is, this, they will make a movie about Stetson Bennett. And I like the, little, the field of dreams. That's a nice little touch. But the Rudy thing is pretty, because I don't think I've seen that anywhere in the media, because people were making a big deal about Stetson Bennett this morning. You know, John Hadley, our, uh, one of our producers, was all fired. Oh, Stetson Bennett is in between puffs of cigarettes. He was talking about you know how big of a deal Stetson Bennett was, but he did not make the Rudy analogy. Well, I mean, uh, the, the other thing with Stetson Bennett, Jason, honestly, it goes to what you were talking about today. We're talking about the family. We're talking about the importance of the family. I mean, this man wanted to follow in a family tradition, man. You know, I mean, honestly, man, you know, you know what it means to say, this is what my daddy wanted me to do. That's what I did. I mean, I would love to follow in my daddy's footsteps if I knew who the hell he was. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, honestly, you can't downplay when you put something in somebody because it's bigger than what the what the media says. You're just like, no, man, this is what my family said they want to do. This is what my heritage wants to do. And that's deep, man. I love that. Jim, that's some of your best work. I'm not going to. I'm not even going to try to step on it. We're going to move. I, I now feel bad about my approval rating uh, for Stetson Bennett, but I can't adjust it. Uh, so I'm just going to... The damage is done. <laughs> Jason's uh, already sat on you. <laughs> uh, Stetson Bennett, uh, job performance. I gave him a 20. I guess in retrospect, I could have gone a little higher on a scale of 1 to 25, but I, I'll stick. I gave him a 20 in job performance. What did you want him to do? What was his job last night? Well, look, he did his, job? his I get it, but at that time, before I heard the Rudy analogy, I was like, the Alabama missing its wide receivers. That was the story. But now... Jason, he was a third string... Seriously, he's a third string wide receiver. And I want kids to listen to this. Because if you're a third string wide receiver... Or excuse me, he's a third string quarterback. Yeah. Third string, fourth string, you know, all of this. When you're that far down the line, how easy is it to say, I ain't never going to get in and play? How easy is it? How easy is it to not pay attention in practice? How easy is it? But then, because you never know, I ain't going to never get in. But then that time comes. See, he had preparation and he was ready for that moment. That's what makes greatness. Come on, man. Jim, you've made your point. Quit rubbing it in my face. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this could have been a great fire starter. Uh, authentic uh, character. Probably should have gone a little higher here. <laughs> but I gave him a 22. That's pretty high. I done told you, man. That, that man has character. That, 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 that man has roots. That man has character, man. Uh, authenticity. A little low here, but I got 18. That's not a bad score. Did you hear what he said in his press conference last night? He said, and, and check this out now. He said, I hope that this win gives somebody a little hope. This man said, keep your mouth shut. He said, work hard. Life is tough. Just work through it. Now, what else is there? What else is there in life? What else can you tell some young people than what that kid said? Come on, man. Uh, it factor. 
I think this is a typographical error. I, I'm sure I gave him a much higher score uh, than the 10 here that's written down, but that's probably a typo. I'm sure I meant to give him much higher, but. Uh, hey man, you know what, let me tell you something. Yeah. In life, life may not get any better for this kid than what it got for him last night. And you know what? Can't nobody take it from him. So it may not get any better than it got last night, but it's his. Congratulations, dude. Uh, I've got him at a grease fire. Jim has him properly rated at a at blazing hot. The show can't be over fast enough. You know, it's very rare that uh, Jim comes on and is smarter than me and puts a clown suit on me, but uh, you just did it, Jim. Congratulations. I hope you feel good. <laughs> oh, hell, my ass about to be unemployed. <laughs> oh, good God, here we go. All right, we'll see you tomorrow. Regrets and our decisions We don't want to go to heaven with freedom It's my obligation No hate, discrimination Raising up your hands for freedom Raise up your hands